Welcome to Esoteric Modulation, episode 017, A Suitcase of Drone. Esoteric Modulation is your podcast that covers all the wild and wonderful world of modular, exciting and unusual instruments, guest interviews, sound snippets, and we also take a look into interesting sound and visual art projects too. I'm Ed Ball. And I'm Ben Wilson. Hi Ben, how are you doing? Good, all good. I've been testing new modules. It's a very common thing in this neck yeah. of the wood. Uh, <laughs> filming, getting videos ready. I've just finished my second album for Google and YouTube for their audio library service, yeah. which is a nice indulgent process of making a random compilation of singles. It doesn't make sense as an album. It's not an artist album. But it was, oh, today I'd really like to make some slamming house music and then I want to indulge in some ambience the next day. And it's quite a nice project for that because it feels like a compilation of singles that maybe have a tone that runs through them. It's all from me. Maybe there's an artistic tone that runs through, but certainly not intended to be an album as they're not going to be consumed that way. So, yeah, indulging in some oddities kind of genre-wise, which has been fun. How about you, Ed? What have you been up to? Well, I've been digging myself back into the Haken Continuum. There was a firmware update. So any of you guys who've got Continuums out there, we've now got version 9. And it's quite nice. The uh, editor's changed a bit. It's a little bit more slicker. And they've added 100 new presets to it, which are very nice. And that brings, I think, the presets to around about 470. And they're sort of bringing in support for the up-and-coming Expressive Osmos as well, I think. A lot of the changes that they're doing are going to support the Osmos. So that'll be interesting to see when that piece of kit's out, Ben, and yeah. you know, how that's received with the Egan Matrix synth engine in. It's interesting, that machine, because I, I imagine some of our listeners, as I would have until playing the Continuum Mini recently, I've still not really had my hands on a Continuum, almost mm. kind of turning their nose up at presets. And I don't mean that as a judgment of anyone, but just the idea of many of us get want to indulge in sound, make sound, it'd be a unique process and a fulfilling process before we've even mm. made any music. But those instruments, I think, because they're so expressive... yeah. It's almost like me and you could play a preset, and I'm kind of air-quoting preset like it's a dirty yeah. word, and not sound the same. And that's kind yeah. of a fascinating thing that, you know, you, you almost don't want to flick through presets on a soft synth like it's a bad, dirty thing to do. And, yeah. You know, some, some I, people I've got to build like them that. from scratch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's back to the, you know, I built a drum because I didn't want to use samples. I got a goat to skin the goat to make the drum head. It's back to that meme that goes around. But genuinely, with a con- it's like handing someone the same guitar is kind of how I look it's at exactly it. exactly that. We all sound the same with a Telecaster, even though it's the yeah. same one or a Les Paul. Or, yeah. They're so expressive. And the Continuum Mini came to life at Huddersfield this last weekend for Modular Meets Electric Spring. And so many people said how that comes to life with an effect or a bit of tape delay yeah. behind it. It's the first time it really spoke to me, the Continuum Mini. Oh, that's um, interesting, you know. Just not put it into a tape delay yet. And so the yeah. idea of more presets, more starting points kind of for expression yeah. is an interesting thing. The Osmos looks great too. Oh, yeah, that looks really good. It really does. I, I, I can't wait to see that piece of kit out. But going back to the Egan Matrix and the presets, it's a weird thing with that because to get into building your own presets with the Egan Matrix, it's not a small feat. There's lots of different types of synthesis engines in there. The thing is the expression, you know, you can take one sound on the continuum and it will definitely sound different to who is playing it because it's all about the expression of playing that sound. And like you said, it's like a guitar, you know, it's a guitar sound. But, you know, in different people's hands, it's a different people's sounds. So I'm not so fussy about trying to change those presets. I have sort of messed around with them. But there's some nice, solid ones there to start with. And also, as you say, I always put it through the Eventide space anyway. You add an effect onto there as well and a little bit of compression as well because I think it needs it to rein some of the sounds in. And it, it's fantastic. So, so yeah, I've been dealing with that. And also, I've been setting up a Patreon account, which hopefully in the next episode I can talk about a bit more. I'm just trying to find a way to do a bit more video to get people involved with the art projects that I'm doing and and maybe get some limited edition artwork out to people within the sort of Patreon sphere as well. I'm just trying to work all that out at the moment. It'd be really nice to see and to make the art 
accessible as well. Um, I think it's fair to say that there won't be gallery prices, whatever no. that means. No. <laughs> you know, I, no. I, I couldn't put a figure on that, but it's not yeah. gallery prices, which yeah. you do gallery-based artwork and exhibitions. Yeah. And you sent me a couple of prints that people may have seen in the back of a couple of videos, I've laid the print down and put the gear on top. So having yeah. that accessible, I think patrons are a really nice way to do that. It's a brilliant way because it it's a real mix because when you've got an art gallery, they set your price basically and you have to, wherever you are, you have to sell at that price. And the more things you do, the more people you sell to, you know, depending on your history, the more your value goes up. And, you know, it gets inaccessible for a lot of people. And I think Patreon's a nice sort of wall garden that I can do and go, okay, you know, I'm having so many people that can get involved with Patreon. It's outside of what I'm doing with the galleries, you know. And what I do is every year I get into a limited edition, signed limited edition, and it's just part of the Patreon subscription. Music's so available. It's, you know, it's an art form that everybody can join in. And an art isn't. And I sort of want to try and bridge that gap somehow and try it, you know, doing it this way. So I'm going to work on it for, for the month and then hopefully sort of release it next month and, and see what happens with it. So it'd be an interesting line to go down. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. One thing that just sprung to mind, I won't ring back too long because we want to keep as much time in the show for our guests as yeah, we can. Yeah, sorry, we've rattled on, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> the resonance, thinking about it in the um, Egan Matrix, the Surge Resonant EQ is tuned in major sevenths. And I remember a quote from Surge himself saying that rather than tuning in octaves like most graphic EQs do, it's more like the natural resonance of an acoustic instrument. And I, um, I find that world, it's a bit geeky, but I find that yeah. world fascinating that you're modeling and building in resonances rather yes. than you know pure oscillators into simple filters into even folders and more buku type instruments or surge it's nice having this resonant space carved out it's almost like an amp simulator or a reverb or it puts it in a kind of space yeah, yeah. Well, as you know, I'm trying to base everything around the, the continuum as a sound source with a few other peripheral bits, but that is going to be it. And that brings me actually nicely onto my guest because he uses a certain piece of equipment that he bases a, a lot of his work around too, but uh, he does a lot with it. I stumbled into this man's video in search of tape-inspired synthesis back in 2015. The video entitled Suitcase of Drone totally struck a chord with me. There lay a suitcase full of cassettes, a Tascam 414, micro cassettes, and yes, my old beloved Casio VL Tone was sitting there snugly between all this yumminess of tape. The sound drew me in, the equipment inspired me, and from then on I was forever a fan. He crafts handmade cassette loops and recontextualizes them in form and sound. Along with his live process guitar, he creates expansive, immersive soundscapes and beautifully organic drones. With clever techniques of looping loops, sampling, field recording and effects, his style is truly hard to pin down, blurring lines between many genres. Well, I think we should just call it amulets. Yes, behind the tape hiss solo projects of amulets, today we have Portland-based audio and visual artist Randall Taylor. Randall, big welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. What a what an intro. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead with the intros. Yeah, that was that was great. Like, wow, rambled on a bit, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good. It's great, Randall. In that video, actually, if I'm not wrong, you had a realistic Concert Mate 200, didn't you? It wasn't a VL tone. Um, yes. Yeah, the the copy VL tone. The copy of the VL tone, wasn't it? It was exactly the same. They just yeah. had a different name on, didn't they? Have you still got that? No, I sold that a while ago. Did you? And and I miss it. And you just bringing that back up, I'm like, oh, I forgot I had that. And it's that epic gas, that gear acquisition that you always, <laughs> yep, see that, yeah. <laughs> I always there's always there's always gear that I, I buy and then I sell yeah. and then I miss and then I'll buy again. It oh, yeah. goes through cycles of like, oh yeah, why did I ever sell that? That was such a good. Ugh. 
anyway. I know. Well, I'm just going to explain because uh, yeah. although this is an audio podcast, we can see each other while we're doing this. And while we're talking <laughs> about that, Ben lauded a box with Vialtone on over because he bought one not so yeah. long back. Like, uh, I'm visually trolling behind the scenes. I apologize. Yeah, and it's in the original box too. Like, come on. Ten pounds. Yeah. Wow. Ten pounds. Wow. Wow. Original yeah. box, original case. Come on, you're killing me. It's brilliant. I sparked his interest on it because I said, oh, there's this uh, calculator number that you can put in that's a yeah. sound that when I was a kid, this was my sort of number that I love that I could get a heavy bass with. And then Ben bought one and goes, oh, what's that number? And then he played it to me and over the Casio speaker and over our microphones, it was like tinny little sounding thing. But I have to say, you, you put it in some processing and uh, there's a few little nice sounds in there. Not many, but a few, isn't yeah. there? Well, I, th- I love the fact that you can use the little like program calculator to like adjust like attack and decay and that's right yeah like, sustain like that's yeah. wild from a calculator keyboard that's yeah 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 i absolutely love that and i think on your suitcase of drone we're using the flute on that i think yeah um, so, yeah <laughs> that, that's great it's so funny you like mentioning that video because like my suitcase has changed so much since then and that very first video was yeah. like i had no idea what i was doing I'm like that's a clever name i'm gonna just you know, play some tapes and, and play this little toy keyboard. And I, you know, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. And since then, it's been a wild ride. Well, I mean, I had a sneak preview of the interview that you did with Ben while he was on his adventures gallivanting around in the US yeah. last year. And you can sort of really see where you've been and where you, you've come to from that video mm-hmm. and what you're doing now. It's immense, the, obviously, the journey that you've been on, which yeah. sort of brings me around to the first question, really. On that interview with Ben, you were saying that the first inspiration was looking at what I call now the uh, Cortini 404 <laughs> video, which I think yeah. was the, the rig rundown by Sonic State. Yes. And you said that sparked your interest, which was interesting because spark mine that was the first video i i looked at and thought oh gosh that's interesting yeah. and of course that sparked your interest now how did it work how did those creative cogs start turning when you've seen that and how did the ideas come of the road that you wanted to try and experiment right. in like i talked to ben in the interview i've been in a lot of bands before and i always had a lot of side projects and a lot of those side projects always lived like you know in the computer in the DAW. like i would just endlessly layer a bunch of things and I never really played them live and that was part of the problem that I was having of making my side project a live project and wanting to be able to perform and be a musician and so I remember in those days I was on YouTube a lot like just like we all are just looking for inspiration looking for how people performed without a computer and that was my big thing of like how do I separate myself from this computer because there's so many layers in my recordings when I was doing like in GarageBand or whatever, that I could only play one part and it just frustrated me that I couldn't have a more live performance. So when I saw that video, it just inspired me to like, look at this piece of gear that, you know, it's very simple four track recorder. Alessandro using tapes was just like blew my mind as just being able to use four chords and have a chord progression. And so I remember getting a four track and trying that out And the way he did it in that video, he was like, oh yeah, I just go into my logic session and I play this chord for 20 minutes and I record each chord on each track. And I started doing that and I was like, this is taking way too fucking long. (laughs) Like, like 20 minutes for each track. Like I just got frustrated. It was really hard for me to like sit there and be like, okay, I'm going to record even a chord for 10 minutes or something. Um, So, you know, and there's always a part of me that's always thinking about how to make things more efficient or faster or easier for myself. So I started looking into tape loops and it's something I'd heard of. I never really made before. I've seen people use them. I didn't really understand them, but I started looking up resources and online and trying to figure out how to make one. And I'm like, oh, if I could do that with a tape loop, then I could do it for five seconds instead of 20 minutes. And I could do it like way faster. And so that's when I started marrying the two. And then that hole just got big. Uh, big. It, <laughs> it, it, it's a huge, huge hole. It, it, you got, yeah, it's a whole world. I've, I've just, <laughs> I'm in now. So you got lost down a very big black hole. Yeah, it's, it's, it's no longer a hole. I'm just like I'm in it, like in another universe. So. 
It's really interesting actually, you sound totally like me because I can't labour over things. It's got to be quick. If I've got to labour over anything creative, I really hate it. It's just got to be quick and inspirational. So it's interesting to see how you sort of took that style and then thought, okay, how can I shortcut this and how can I make it my own, which is Mm -hmm. really interesting. On that journey down from the original videos Mm -hmm. that you made, what have been sort of the highlight points, the little sparks that you've gone, oh, okay, yeah, this is this is where I need to go. And then, mm. oh, okay, maybe this piece of equipment right, right. is opening up a, a more avenue. So sort of technique-wise and maybe equipment-wise, what have been the little sparks and seeds that you've enjoyed down that road? Well, I think that even like you mentioning the first like suitcase of drone video, when I first started experimenting, I had all these loose pieces of gear. Like I had the four track, I had another tape player, I had a couple pedals and they were just on a table. And um, around that time, I remember the Eurorack module cases and started coming out a lot more and like being more accessible and affordable for people. And I remember admiring so many like Eurorack people who could just open up a little suitcase and then everything's yeah. like plugged in and they can just like go. And I was inspired by that. I didn't buy any modules because I didn't have any money. <laughs> That's just why I use tapes <laughs> still. But I remember being inspired by that and trying to put my shit in a suitcase and be like, okay, I could do the same thing. I could just open it up and mm. play it. And I remember that was like a, a cool moment of being like, okay, if I can do this and I can have everything set up, then I can play. Then I can play live. And then yeah. there was like, you know, there's been different versions of the suitcase. Uh, like one of the things, the early version, like the lid didn't stay up. So one of my first shows that I played, the lid kept falling down on me. And I I learned the hard way that I was like, oh, I'm fucking this up. I need something that props up. Uh, Otherwise, like this, this won't work. So things like that along the way, like moving more toward like, how do I make this setup compact? How do I make it work for me? And how do I make it travel well? And um, when I started doing all these things, there was a performative aspect I was missing that when I played a show with all the tapes uh, that I felt like I wanted to do more or I wanted to be more expressive in the music I was making and had this aha moment where it's like, hey, you've been playing guitar for 20 years. Why don't you play guitar? I'm like, that's a good idea. I'm like, how would I do that though? How would I play guitar over tape loops? Right. It was just like the idea of like, oh, right. You can just get a looper. If I got a looper, then I can loop on top of loops and like maybe that'll work. And so I kind of like relearned how to play guitar in a different way with what I was doing and trying to like figure out a sound that made sense for loop guitar and and tape loops. I think like my first looper I I bought was the, the, uh, it was the Ditto X2. Yeah. And that looper kind of like changed everything because once I was able to loop something and stop playing guitar and go back to the tapes and then bounce back to the guitar, it really opened up the sonic palette, but also like this freedom to like play and perform and like have things that changed and moved and everything started clicking and making more sense to me being like, Oh, right. I can play guitar with this and, and do all of it together. And from that, it was just a matter of like evolving that sound. And then I think I got other four tracks. I think uh, those helped. I got a a Marantz PMD two, two, one. With the th- they're lovely those though aren't they that really changed a lot for recording for me like having that third head and being able to like, and just it's just like a really high quality recorder where i've been buying a lot of like really shitty tape recorders over the years like this one was like really really nice of course the library of congress the american printing house for the blind those tape players are really great too for experimenting yeah. and recording my op1 that changed a lot for me like cool. i've been like admiring an op1 for like nine years and then I finally bought one and I was like, oh, yeah, like, what's the big deal? Like, and then over time, I just saw people use them to like crazy extents. Then I bought it and it feels like it changed my life. I was like, wow, this thing could do so much. Right. Yeah. And like, I bring it everywhere and, and it, it's definitely one of the more expensive pieces of gear I have. So it looks like the VL tone, but it's a lot more expensive and you yeah. can do a lot more with <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good VL tone upgrade you did there. <laughs> yeah, right. I stole my VL tone and bought an OP1. Yep. <laughs> you could deep sample the VL tone. Oh yeah. Into into the OP1. You yeah. wouldn't have to be without it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just to ring back to guitar though. Yeah. I like this idea that time was spent. I don't know why I like it because it's of no 
relevant to me. <laughs> it's your own personal <laughs> thing. But I like the idea that time was spent making the guitar work. Yeah. Because in a typical guitar player world, mm -hmm. say playing rock music, it's yeah. easy to kind of go, oh, yeah, I can play a few funk licks. Or, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can play the blues or mm -hmm. I could play a soul tune. Yeah. And it's like, well, you kind of can paint by numbers at first and speaking to my own experience here but i'm sure there's parallels for lots of people listening you get in a band you play in a style and you kind of you do have that mindset early on of yeah i know a little bit of funk i know a little bit of jazz i know a few of these chords and i could do this but it's never satisfying yeah. and listening back to those things it, almost periods where we weren't happy or maybe even embarrassed with our earlier output <laughs> But it's an odd thing to think about that this tape looping and this medium was almost that same situation of, all right, I've got, this is where I want to go. This path has opened. Mm. I need to learn to play to this. Yeah. Well, I, I, because I've had so many yeah. of those myself on the guitar of, I need to learn to do funk properly. Right, and right. it means changing the mindset and steering that way for a band or a project. For sure. You can't just randomly do what you would do on a guitar and expect it. No. to work it's like it is like a band i mean like if you're playing with a drummer with, with a certain style like you're going to adjust your playing to that and i i definitely consider like my four tracks like my bandmates like even though they're not always reliable just like bandmates and so like the tape loops themselves they are doing their part and they're playing their parts and so i'm adjusting how i play to that and i kind of relearned a way to do that and for me it was a lot of a sonic exploration within guitar of trying to make the guitar sound less like a guitar. A lot of that was make, maybe trying to take off some of the attack of a guitar. That's why I do a lot of like volume swells and like a looping of, of guitar parts that aren't, you know, dink, 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 dink. It's like trying to smooth it out and take off the attack of the guitar, make it more sustain more or affect it more to, to make it blend in more with what I'm trying to do. And still then there's also like, when I want it to sound like a guitar, I can always have those parts too. Mm. One of my lecturers going back quite a few years with my degree which is music tech and popular music liz dobson who's someone Milo melodies has had on why we bleep somewhat recently we used to have to do these experiments where the front the middle and the end of the note so the transient the attack the body and the sustain and how it fades is what defines it and, yeah. and we'd listen to things where the attack portion would be a piano the sustain would be a middle chunk of a guitar and the decaying element would maybe be another stringed instrument mm -hmm. and as soon as you start to change those around or just isolate any one of them it's so difficult to hear if the loop it's almost like making a granular loop out of the note c3 and you just take a sustained part of any instrument because the way that the sound is shaped this going back to almost the continuum and it being really expressive it's not just its harmonic content it's those changes over time but it makes a huge difference as you said taking that front end off of a guitar because it's something you physically can't do right. on the instrument itself yeah unless you start going jimmy page and trying to bow the thing but <laughs> I, had, I had a phase where i was trying to bow a lot of guitar too yeah did you actually arch the bridge no no i didn't arch the bridge i just got a, a violin bow and i was just trying to like go for it and it was, i think it was more of a dramatic effect then it was like a practical effect. Yeah. And for me, like playing guitar, just like in a live setting made sense of like being able to translate what I'm doing to people. Like they don't always know what's going on in the suitcase. They just are like, well, I don't know what the hell you're doing in that suitcase thing. But at least when you play a guitar note or something, I my brain can understand that. So it tries to relate a part of what my performance to the audience and like knowing that like I'm this is what I'm trying to express, like through all this gear and instrumentation and everything. Yeah, we had Jamie Liddell on uh, last show and he was saying something similar about how he likes to visualize a performance and half of sort of looping and going down that road is showing people the process and what you're doing. And I think that uh, having that guitar really just visualizes in a live mm. instance, people can focus on and people can sort of see what you're doing. And I think things like that, when you're in that type of environment uh, are so crucial. It's like I'm building my sort of like performance case up and I've, I've built it so it slopes forward towards the audience. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, so you can see mm -hmm. it's a bit awkward to play, sure. but I when when I'm in the audience and I see a modular performance and all I can see is the back of a modular and somebody's head occasionally popping mm -hmm. out, 
I, I get a bit frustrated. I love to see what's going sure. on. And so I was sort of purposely built this at sort of slopes at a 45 degree angle so people can mm -hmm. see because I want to go down sort of looping routes. I am going down looping routes. But again, I think people need to sort of visualize that, don't yeah. they? Yeah, I think that it, it definitely helps. And and part of forming the YouTube channel was just being able to share between YouTube and Instagram, just being able to share visually like what I'm doing or experimenting with, especially like on, on YouTube, like just the suitcase of drone videos, like an overhead shot of what's in the suitcase and what I'm doing uh, is a good reference or for people who, who may not know what I'm doing and I can point them to that video or people who come to the show. So like, I know exactly what's in that suitcase and I can't wait to see <laughs> what you do with it. So it, it works out to be able to have that visual component just so people can understand a bit better what's going on. Or or maybe they don't want to understand, they just want to enjoy the mystery of it. I don't know. Just ringing back around to playing the guitar live, of course, this visual component, but as an artist playing the instrument, of course, you've spent the time to kind of learn the style as we discussed, like getting good at blues if you're a funk player mm -hmm. or whatever other comparison. Once you are comfy with it stylistically, because you've got this history with the guitar, how was first starting to perform it live? Was there a comfort zone of, mm -hmm. I've stood on you know many stages yeah. of a guitar, this doesn't faze me, or was it still this new thing that was almost kind of had an, its own nerving edge? Well, it's, it's funny, there was a discomfort with just playing like tapes on a table, and I didn't really know what I was doing, so there was that discomfort and being unsure of that. Once I introduced guitar, there was both like a, a comfort level of just holding a guitar on stage and be like, okay, I understand this feeling. I understand what I have to do here. But then also playing like a new style that I wasn't, that I was still developing or whatever, that was a little nerve wracking. So it was both like comforting and nerve wracking. At least I could hide behind a guitar or at least feel comfortable. Like if everything else broke, I could still play guitar. And like, yeah, luckily that never happened. <laughs> and I don't think that anyone would want to just hear me play guitar. But, uh, you know, it's it's worked out where it's it's super comfortable. Everything makes sense to me. And like without a guitar now, I don't think it would be the same at all. I like how uh, early you suggested that your tape recorders are like your bandmates and that they can be a bit unpredictable too. Yeah. And I love that analogy. I'm really interested to find out how you compose those tapes and taking the analogy that, that you know they are your band members it'd be like sort of sitting down and and working out the structure of a track or a song you know before you sort of playing it live how do you go about that what sort of techniques are you using what are you recording into is it very mixed or have you got like a set sort of creative path that you go down to pre-record these tapes in four track i see that you've always got the key that they're in on the tape can you take us through that sort of what would be a lovely process of creating that yeah um so for the four tracks themselves mostly starts with the four track tape itself and Using the Tascam 414, I have one in my home studio setup and one in my suitcase, and they're both like tuned to each other. So I can, whatever I record onto this, I bring over and like always test on that one. So I record synths, guitars, different, sometimes they're samples, but I record different things to each of the four tracks. A lot of them start off as like just chord progression. So if I'll do like a synth pad and I'll do like four chords on each one. And then I'll bring it over to my suitcase setup and I'll kind of like play through it and be like, okay, I like the, the way this sounds because it's one thing to record it on in my studio and then bring it over to my live setting and be like, okay, this is how it's actually going to sound once it's run through all the, like, the right. reverb and the delay and stuff. So I'll start there and then the other four track recorder in the suitcase, it's kind of like an auxiliary one where that's a lot of field recordings and, and melodies and notes and other things that I want. So I'll, I'll record that on another four track as well and then bring that over and kind of test it out. And so I'll, I kind of like put them against each other and see what sounds good. And so once the two four tracks are running together, it's kind of this battle of like, okay, does this make sense? Does this sound good? Texturally, is it there? And then I can start adding guitar on top of that and like structuring out a song. So at that stage, how much are you kind of bedding in effects at the initial kind of sound generation on the machines that you then put into the live system are you committing to some sense of you know effect and space is that a key part mm -hmm. of it or is it about 
the kind of notes and the melody and not rhythmic like right. you know, beat driven in terms of your work but the rhythms and the patterns is it about that and how that speaks to your live system or is it getting textures and effects down and committing early on i think it's more toward the getting textures and effects early on and then committing to that and trying to find a sound within that because usually that sound translates well to the live setting and this recording process is shifting too because then uh, like my first i don't know 10 albums i don't i would do all of that that whole process and i would record each song as a live take so i would, I would kind of structure out the tape loops and kind of run through a guitar part and i would just record each song as like one take and so my first albums were just all live cuts. And so I, it would be really late at night. I would record a song. I go to bed. I listen to it the next day. I'm like, ah, that sounds good. It was just a process and like a test to see if I could create something, like make a song, finish it, and not endlessly revise it. Because I spent so much time not finishing songs and not finishing albums that it became my goal to like just kind of put some stuff out there. And whether it was like the best thing I ever made or the worst thing, just trying to be like, okay, I want to like have work out there. And over the years, like that process has been changing where I've done some more like multi-track recording. Some songs are still live takes. My latest album had more multi-track stuff, but a lot of the same process of still recording to the four track, bringing it into the computer, recording a bunch of sounds on tape outside of the computer and then bringing them in. Hmm. At that stage as well, how much are you thinking about what you're going to play live as a live musician? Because you're forming these beds or textures or initial melodies. You then want to play over mm -hmm. it. From the amulets I know and we've seen so far, you don't want all this on tape. As we yeah. spoke about, you want to then stand with the guitar. So how much of it is getting the ideas out of your head mm -hmm. and how much of that is distancing yourself from well, I actually want to play this bit live, so maybe I don't want that on a cassette or recorded somewhere. Yeah, I think the tapes themselves are really good at when I know that like there's like the chord progression or like the drone that's really really that's gonna be a really good part to have there. And then anything more expressive or longer than a five second loop, it kind of defaults to guitar of like once I establish that bed with all of the tape loops and loops themselves, like how do I layer something that's more melodic or a longer loop or something? And that's when um, the guitar comes in. It's like the default of having something that moves a, a bit more. And so, the, yeah. Do you find yourself recording the longer form parts to enable you to further explore the idea and then take it out of the live system? If, for example, a longer form melody or chord progression or movement whatever it may be, you say anything longer than five seconds, you, you'll tend to play. Do you right. find yourselves recording those to enable you to explore the sound? Or do you somehow manage to keep that in your mind of, I'm going to play over this, but I don't know what I'm going to play yet? Well, that's the thing. Like, as I've been getting more of these, developing more of these parts, some of them have been like, oh, okay, in a live setting, how would I do that? And not every song translates into a live setting anymore. Some of them are harder to do. But like, if I had to do it, like there's been parts where I'm like, okay, this one part's really long and I'm going to record that to tape, but I'm just, it's just not going to be a tape loop. It's just going to be a standard tape where and I'll put that Walkman inside my suitcase and then play that part. So it's still on tape, but it's just like another layer that I can add. But also the OP1 in my suitcase has been really good for that too. Like if I need a sample or a small backing thing, like a track that I can't necessarily play that I can like play off the OP1, it's really nice. And I've been using the sequencer a lot in the OP1 to add a bunch of parts. And so that's been a real like newer development of being able to layer the tape loops, OP1 sequencer, and then my guitar. You know, like we talked about all these different length loops, like stacking on each other and kind of like weaving in and out of each other. How much effort do you have to put in to make all that gel? Because I think tape, and not to take away your skill set and talent for this, but tape and guitar really just speaks to each mm -hmm. other. I imagine the OP1 and tape does, but I don't have one to personally explore that. But how much effort goes into that other sonic space that is the OP1, say a synth on there or a clean sample? Yeah. How much goes into blending, you know, the lo-fi right. tape loops, tape noise, field recording guitar? The OP1 almost seems like the outlier yeah. in that. For setting. sure. And like for the OP1, I honestly don't use the synth engine that much. Like I, I do a okay. lot of samples into the OP1. I really like the built-in mic of the OP-1. I, I'll play like a tape loop into the OP-1 to sample that. So a lot of the samples that I use with the OP-1 already inherently have a lo-fi quality to them. 
where that's intentional just to make it blend more because I've had those instances where like the OP one is just like way too clean. It's way too like pristine. It kind of like sits on top of everything and it, it doesn't feel like me, I guess. It feels a little too uh, shiny. So I'll mess with samples and bring them into the OP one just to like make them better. If there's a specific synth sound I like in the OP one, I've recorded the note that I like to tape and then recorded it back into the OP one just so it sounds it's like shittier and I can sequence that shittier note and it sounds better. And that plays back into what you said about doing that with five second loops right. or the minute loop as opposed to the Cortini 20 minutes. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so it's just kind of, it's always trying to like dirty something up or give it more texture or, or noise or something. So is your sweet spot at five seconds around there with your 414? Is that sort of yeah. where you feel really comfortable with it? The I've had the longer, the, the little glued in loops and you, I've gotten longer yeah. times out of the tape loops. But I found that like when I'm touring, I'm playing shows, those tape loops tend to break. They tend to mess up. I used to live in Texas. And when I played a couple of shows there, like it was so hot, like the glue melted from the little Post, oh, wow. and it would move and then it would fuck up the whole tape loop so like i just kind of like yeah. started relying on the old five second loops yeah because they're fairly straightforward they're aren't they fairly straightforward they they don't uh they don't tend to break as easily but you know i've had live shows too where when i'm playing and a, and a tape loop breaks that's kind of yeah. like the end of that song and i'll have backup yeah. songs it's like your guitar player like breaking the string and you're like okay we got to move on to the next song and so i'll have backup tapes in my suitcase just to be able to switch songs yeah and, and go on to the next you know the tape that you're using because they always say to use chrome but are you using just standard tape to get more of a lo-fi sound or do you use chrome on them i know that it always says like to use chrome for like the high yeah. quality like I, I don't think i've ever used chrome get that nice hiss and warmth in if anything i'll even take the tape and just like crumple it in my hands and then put the tape loop back in yeah, and it just sounds real shitty. It's <laughs> shittier so, um, the better. Yeah, like I'll make it like more lo-fi than lo-fi. So obviously, you love the four one fours. Have you tried any other sort of machines, or is it just that you got a four one four? It just hit the spot for you. you. You haven't experimented with any other machines outside of the Tascam range. I have a couple of Fast X ones. I'm trying to look around this room. I like have like twelve floor tracks in this room, so I'm just. <laughs> Wow. Uh, they don't all work, uh, but uh, yeah, I have a couple Fast X ones. Yeah, the Tascam Porter O2s. Yeah, it's kind of really, I've only really messed around with like a lot of the Fast X and Tascams. And but the 414, I always come back to just because I think that like the functions it has as far as like, it's got, you know, a, a simple EQ. It's got two effects loops. Oh, yeah, it's I got can, two effects loops. Yeah, and I utilize both effects loops uh, to the max for sure. Yeah. And like. It has like you know speed adjustment like i don't know i think the the 414 has like everything it's got it all i i went for the yamaha i mean it's sort of ugly in a beautiful way yeah it's an interesting design isn't it like it is a real well yeah. i was saying to ben it's like a brutalist design it's just <laughs> yeah. you know really in your face isn't it i sort of quite like it in a brutalist manner and i went for it because as well as having the pitch control on it it's got half speed as well which I know the Tascam doesn't have that half speed, which is unfortunate, isn't it? That's just one. I wish it had. Yeah, it's just one thing away. I say all that, and I'm still trying to get that to work, that Yamaha. I bought it. Before I even tested it, I just stripped it down, cleaned it, and put all new belts on it. Mm -hmm. And then when I played it, it just kept automatically stopping. So I don't know whether the problem was there before I had it or whether I've caused the problem with sort of cleaning all the mechanism out, putting all the new belts on. And, yeah. and so I've got to get that working. But with that, you haven't got two effect sends. You've only got the one. So that's nice to know that the 414 has got those two effects sends which um, you can do a lot with I'm guessing yeah yeah for sure I use the one effects send as for my delay and reverb and those are always on with the tape loops and then the second one has the zoom ms50g yeah. and it's like a little shitty multi-effects unit yeah and I've programmed a lot of like little pedal board configurations so I can have multiple effects running and so I have settings where I'll change that to like, oh, this is that tremolo delay thing. And I'll bring that effect in and apply it to the tape loops for certain parts of the song. So it gives me more like flexibility with, within a song 
to be able like, oh, I'm going to make this part distorted. I'm going to make, you know, whatever effects I want to bring in. That little like computer is like really handy. You had a really interesting mix of effects and the video, how to amulets with special guest amulets. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah, how to amulets. So <laughs> we've also mentioned the interview that, that yourself and i did uh, randall that is a patreon exclusive for my supporters and your supporters mm -hmm. we will link those for people that maybe want to support down below that'll be live by this, the time this show airs as is the public video the how to amulets and we had yes. a great look through your effects board on there so we don't need to get in pedal by pedal like we did in the video but it's a really interesting mix of what people would kind of consider boutique or desirable pedals and as you said, kind of cheap and shitty pedals as well. I think one of the reverbs you were choosing to use on your auxiliary machine, was it like $20 mm -hmm. or something? I can't yeah. remember what it was called, but I remember finding it after. I was like, oh no, wow, it really is $20. Yeah, I, I told you, it was cheap. It was <laughs> yeah. Is that part of the sound? There was this, an interesting Twitter thread earlier today, and I won't derail too far, but someone basically said all software plug-in reverbs are too lush. I want like a 1991 or 88, I think was the year, cheap digital reverb. And I think right. it was Alex Myler Melody said, speak to Sean Costello of Valhalla, whereas his plugins are super lush, he's going to know how to do it. Mm -hmm. And Sean basically gave a how to de-lush a reverb effect oh. and kind of like strip these yeah. settings away like a step-by-step. -step. <laughs> we'll maybe screenshot that and put it in the show notes. Yeah. It was a great kind of do these five things to de-lush your reverbs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just bringing it back round, how much do you find yourself in those effects you know certain players will have a fuzz that really speaks to my like ed with the space the space has really spoken to ed as his reverb how much goes into finding yourself in those effects be them literally 20 dollars cheap reverbs yeah. or you know more desirable units so like the more high-end pedals and reverbs and things you know i'm not against them i just don't have the money for them necessarily and and historically i've just been like oh i can buy a 20 dollar pedal and if I don't like it, I can just return it or I'll just keep it and it doesn't matter. Like I might use it for something else. So I just think the price point always gets me of like, oh, I'll try it. It feels like a low investment where if it's awful, it'll be fine. <laughs> I used to be more like hell bent on being like, you can do everything with cheap gear and like you can. I still believe in that. I still believe in like using a lot of used gear and cheaper things and you whatever, however you use it, uh, you know, you can make some something great out of it. Just having the limitations and being creative and like trying to figure that out. I think that I, I'm not necessarily like, oh, I only have to use this cheap gear. It just, some of it just happens or some of it works or like I'll pull it off my shelf. I'm like, well, this one has delay and reverb and I'll try it in the setup. I'm like, it sounds good. And some of those are always rotating too. Like some of them are good for certain albums or tours or something. And then, and then I'll get like, get tired of some of them. And, and just like my pedal board, like those be certain pedals that like come in and out. So it definitely doesn't have to do with the price necessarily, but the sound quality. Or like what it sounds like, like how big is it? For because that's always something that I'm constantly trying to play like Tetris with my setup and try to fit as much and make it as efficient as possible. So, yeah. I mean, if it sounds right, it sounds right, and yeah, it's really easy. I've certainly got caught up in it before to go through this kind of gear snobbery thing, and there's lots of very expensive gear that's fantastic yeah, of course yeah. and Absolutely. you know you get what you pay for a lot of the time as well but i just love this idea and it's kind of sparked before we did this i saw a video that was five pedals for a hundred dollars twenty dollars each and the point of the video was just that you can have a chorus and try it for such little investment and it might not be the best chorus and it might not actually be the right one for you but i like this idea that it's almost a functional thing i need a reverb i'll right. just try this and it almost it doesn't matter it wasn't about the gear it was about putting a reverb in that point yes. in the setup absolutely and that's more important than yeah. just lusting after which reverb pedal it is right i also love the idea that they rotate around almost like how a band evolves and their albums change over time yeah you know you hear that someone's bass tone changed because they moved to an Ampeg rig or whatever. Right. I love this idea that across the Amulet's discography, the reverbs change. Like Ed with the Space, if all of a sudden that changed to a mm -hmm. TC Hall of Fame or whatever, two albums in, it shifts. And it's a really yeah. nice way, I think, for electronic musicians that have so many tones at their disposal to actually kind of just nudge the sound around. Absolutely. Well, and especially because like you were talking about plugins before, like I don't use any plugins. I don't really know much about plugins. So those are physical things like plugins that I'm changing out. You know, like I always use the analogy, my 
studio and the you know this shelf behind me here filled with pedals and effects and, and gear i always feel like i'm cooking something and i use this analogy because i do really enjoy cooking but i feel like i'm always trying to cook something and i'm looking in my pantry and i'm pulling out things and i'm trying to smash them together i'm like does this taste good does this feel good like all these flavors like combining and i feel like some of the more expensive pedals like Sometimes you just need salt. This thing needs more salt and I'm going to put more salt in and maybe salt is reverb and I'm going to put a shitload of salt in it. But like, I don't need the most expensive salt to make it salty. It doesn't need to be pink Himalayan rock salt. It doesn't need to be pink Himalayan salt necessarily. A bit of road salt will do the trick. Sometimes that would be great. It, would, it might elevate it a little bit more, but sometimes it just needs to be salty. And so I'll just put it in. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't have to be the fanciest thing. And sometimes I'm more concerned about like the overall like creation of the dish than I am of the individual components and like how expensive or nice they are. I like that analogy. I really do. Because I think I, I use that cooking analogy in with my art and how, you know, you mix all these things to get the perfect blend. And sort of talking about art, I know you're a visual artist as well mm. as a audio artist. And I, so I've been sort of scrubbing around your website and things and just having a look at what you do in there. And I've come up against some projects on your, the visual side, like Parallels, which was mm. exploring um, the tape loop, which it was sort of like two tape recorders that were melded together in a roundabout sort of a six foot yeah. plinth, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, I found that very interesting. And then where land meets sea, doing things with old cameras to soundscapes as well. And of course, the Library of Congress loops, which was brilliantly packed with lots of stuff. My question is, obviously, you went to art school. I wondered what your visual artwork was like then, because it seems now it is very much down the tape installation route. So how's that evolved? And is that where you're heading with your visual art? Well, so when I went to art school, I, I majored in film and then I, I was a photography minor too. But like um, when I was in school and before I went to school, I was really into filmmaking. Once I got to school, I, I dove into a lot of experimental films and I started doing a lot of like more abstract filmmaking. I was doing a lot of feedback loops. I was manipulating like VHS things and like oh, trying to use different gear. I think that's where it started, like trying to use older gear or use gear or thrifting more and just trying to find things that were different. And for my visual art at that time, it was a really just all about making experimental films and, and different mediums and stuff. And so I think from there, I remember I made like a soundtrack to one of my films like in college and it really sparked this interest of being like, wow, that was cool to marry like my already active interest as a musician with filmmaking and being able to like both shoot something and then score it. In college, I also got into like circuit bending. And yeah. so I taught myself how to like circuit bend stuff. I wasn't great at it, but like I did a decent job where I like had like this weird noise set with all my circuit bent instruments in school. And I think everyone was really weirded out because it was like, it was like <laughs> a half hour noise set and they're like, this is fucked up. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so I think like all of these like little pieces when I was in college, they just kind of like they're, they're all coming back now in like what I do with them. Yeah, that, that's interesting because the, seed, the seeds were there, wasn't they? Because that was quite a time ago. So yeah. you can see the seeds there of the interest yeah. with old equipment and with tape and with the analog. Yeah. And you sort of come back round to that in the audio form, haven't you? And it looks like now you're taking it forward into the installation form as well. Yeah. Yeah. In college, I remember always, you know, I went to see a lot of my friends' installation work, photography work, and, and just like little galleries all around that I always wanted to do that myself. And when I was out of college, I got a, like a local artist residency and I had my first taste of like doing an installation. And I really liked that. Then I kind of like fell off like the visual art side of, and I was just pursuing music more after for years, kind of stopped making films. I don't know. I got like, discouraged by like trying to like make experimental films and put them out into like festival circuits and everything. And so then when I kind of started doing amulets, I brought back a lot of those visual elements and I was like, oh, I'm going to make like a music video for one of my songs. And it was just kind of going back to what I knew of like, oh, I want to make this experimental video and then match my music with it. In my live shows, I know that 
I'm one person up there looping guitar and and looping tapes and everything. And that's not always the most interesting thing to look at. And so I wanted to make it a more immersive experience. So part of that was making these visuals for my live shows. And it went directly back to like art school being like, oh, I want to make this long form experimental piece. That is another texture and layer that's literally like blasting me in the face during my live shows. So people can like look at that, hear my music and have this fully like immersive experience. So the visual art, uh, it's all coming back now and it's all. It, it looks like you're drawing that through to your albums, your tape releases and your vinyl too, with the sort of packages you're putting together there. Do you enjoy doing that side of it? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think that when I was in, I guess like even early on, in my life, like I, I did a lot of like arts and crafts with my mom <laughs> yeah. and uh, I really loved it. I still, still really love it. And I, I feel like I got like early on, I just really loved like making things and like crafting and, and doing other things. And that translated into like when I was in bands, like I did a lot of like the packaging and DIY of like making all our albums and stuff. I really enjoyed that. And I just kept doing that. Before I had Amulets, I, I was running a small record label, like a real a small tape label. And I really enjoyed like doing all the design work for the tapes and like packaging a lot of stuff and trying to be creative because I wasn't necessarily recording the music. I was releasing the music. So trying to get the, the visual component of the artwork and the physical merchandise it was really inspiring and, and I had a lot of fun with it. And so I've taken all of these kind of like skills and, and brought them to Amulets. And, and yeah, I have a lot of fun doing the packaging. And I think that like some of the things you can do with these like tape releases, it's just like, I don't know, it's sky's the limit, right? Speaking of packaging, that really lovely leads us on to uh, <laughs> our Bandcamp album of the show, which we haven't had a Bandcamp album of the show for a short while. So it's been nice to kind of indulge in myself and Ed bat things around kind of find these little quirks on repeated listens it's really nice as a way to go back and listen to between distant and remote your last album that's final not cassette so it affords more space and it's a really lovely kind of cover and concept as well visually the thing i really wanted to ask you that because it's such a barrier for people how did you find the process of actually getting vinyl made from someone that releases cassettes which yeah. doesn't seem too difficult yeah to do what was that process of getting vinyl manufactured like? So I've wanted to do a vinyl release for years. And I've had a lot of labels approach me and ask me to do that. And like, for whatever reason, it didn't work out. Um, I looked into doing it myself. But this local label, Beacon Sound, here in Portland, this guy, Andrew, who owns it and runs it, he approached me and he was like, I really like what you do. And I want to put out your next record on vinyl. And I was like, okay, cool. I'm I'm ready for three months from now for us to be like, ah, it's not gonna happen. <laughs> like, so I was kind of gearing up for like the disappointment of it. But he's awesome. He was consistent. He was enthusiastic. He followed through. He fronted it, and he was like, I'll you know, well, I'll make my money back. I believe in you, and we were able to do it. And it, like without his help, I wouldn't have. So it just you know took like uh, one person <laughs> believing in me and, and some money, and that's how I was able to do it. I I wouldn't have done it otherwise. I know, and I know a lot of people go out and find the manufacturer and do all of that. Um, it's just like costs that you know I couldn't necessarily afford. So that's why I haven't done it. It's a huge expense and a yeah. huge lead times as well. Yeah. It's really prohibitive for lots of people. And with a recent loss of a vinyl manufacturer around yeah. the world, I forget the name, there's now even less of them around. Mm -hmm. Why vinyl instead of tape? I mean, I totally get the appeal of both. So I'm always yeah. going to step away from my own question. Yeah. <laughs> the obvious link of releasing cassette with cassette-based music is a yeah. nice thing. It's almost double sure. lo-fi. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's great being on vinyl releases. Yeah. It's a stupid question. But why vinyl instead of tape? For me, I mean, I've had so many tape releases, both like through labels and self-release that like, it was just like a goal. I mean, I think it's even before that, it was just like, like a life musician goal to be able to like mm. have my music on vinyl and to hold a, a physical release like that and know that like this music that I made is on a record i think that just i just wanted that it's such a lovely thing yeah Bafaco, or at least part of Bafaco in barcelona run a small label called synth vicious as in sid vicious but synth vicious and uh they released a mini disc recently they kind of really <laughs> deliberately <laughs> deliberately obtuse and prohibitive they were like hey you got a mini disc player i was like no, no well, I'm done. <laughs> yeah there'll be wax cylinders and then floppy disc next definitely interested i've thought about releasing a mini disc before 
and like doing like you know those mini CDRs, like the really tiny ones. Yeah, the only fit in certain CD trays. Yeah, I, I have like a, a a bunch of them, and I'm like, oh, I really want to do that. And like, it's it's like the most impractical. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I've I've released like I have a v, I had a VHS release a few years ago that I did with like my visuals and the music paired under it. And I sold those at shows and people were like, did you like release a VHS? I'm like, oh, I have a DVD as well. I'm like, no one wants, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I'll do it. It's fine. Going back to uh, between distance and remote. So you had this outside influence, a label wanted to release your music. What was then the concept for the album? You said that you were ready for three months in for this not to happen due to past experiences. Did that taint the process at all? Or was it, well, I'm just going to make the album and whatever happens, happens. I've got the album. Yeah, it was kind of like whatever happens, happens. I've got the album. Like I started working on it. And I think that for me, the the album really came together in a way that, you know, it didn't matter if it worked out or not. Like I, I had something I wanted to make. And a lot of that was influenced by my recent move to Portland. I've been here about two and a half years because I grew up in upstate New York and then moved down to Austin and living in Austin was a total like climate and culture change and and then coming up to the pacific northwest just like really finding a nice home here in a nice community but also it was just i started going to therapy for the last few years and i've really changed my life and it's made me learn a lot about myself and unlearn a lot of things too in my life and a lot of that album is just kind of this this journey that I've been on of like just a very personal journey of like, you know, just trying to be better, trying to be a whole person, trying to be more myself. And, you know, there's with my music, I know that like, I'm never going to like write lyrics and sing <laughs> on anything, but it was just a challenge of like, how do I, can I communicate this, what I'm feeling in music and music's always been that for me of like, how do I express myself through this? And, and Amulets is one of the biggest, like kind of like emotional releases in my life and this album is kind of like peak that so so what was the feeling once it was complete i didn't know there was this this whole kind of period in your life attached to the album is it almost like the foot's off the gas this this thing's released it's out do you kind of live in that space for a while musically or as soon as it's out there was it quite a therapeutic thing and you move on from it well it's kind kind of aftermath of that kind of creative process i think it was a for me like i put a lot of pressure on myself with the album of like knowing that it was going to be on vinyl, like that it had to be better or something that I was like, I need to be really good. And that was confusing, I think, because I was both trying to like make something that was honest to me, but also like good and whatever good means. I mean, good is arbitrary. It's just like, oh, I should really make a really good album. Like, like my other albums are good or that I'm not good. And so it like became this like questioning of, of myself. I'm working on a, a new album that's going to be, I hope, even more genuine to who I am. And like, as I progress as a human being and like understand myself better, that I'm, I make more music that is authentic to me and that, that I believe in. But I think when once it was released, it was definitely like a little scary to know that like there's always some real feelings that go into like the music making into the albums. But this one felt a little bit more raw just because, you know, after being in therapy and like understanding myself better that I was like, oh, I'm actually sharing a part of myself that feels different than than previous ones and so once it was out there i just wanted people to like it but i at the same time it was just like well if whether they like it or not i like it and i believe in it and that i hope that it does okay i don't know like it was kind of like you had to let it go once it was out there and like i couldn't do anything else about it i just knew that like that i was i was proud of it and so Do you feel you're entwining more of your music in with your your therapy and you're working through things now more than you used to? Have you brought the music into that to help you more with that? Well, I think that for me, I I think that the music was therapy for many years. It was the only voice I had. It was like the only language I knew how to speak about my feelings and like how I was feeling. And so a lot of albums definitely were me and like how I was feeling or feelings that I didn't I didn't know that I was feeling and that came out that way like there's a lot of songs that like happen at 2 a.m on previous records that I would like record and I would listen to the next day I'm like wow that sound that song is like really sad and like was I really sad like I didn't feel sad but like what came out was very sad and 
I think now I'm just having better language to express myself and like both in my music and in person and in my life. Uh, there's less of a wall up of being like, I don't know how to talk about my feelings. All I know is yeah. that I like record music and then have that talk where I'm like trying to do both now and integrate that. Express it as a whole. Yeah, like integrate them fully and, and be just more whole instead of like two yeah. halves of a person that like, you know, don't communicate or something. That's a beautiful thing to bring in, isn't it? With your journey. And I suppose that's the great thing about music, isn't it? Music and art. It's a great thing to pour your expression out into and and sort of let it float and go and sort of say goodbye to it or embrace it. Um, I think that's the, one of the great positive things about being a, an artist and a musician. That creative outlet can be a real positive release of energy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that... I just got back from like a, a couple weeks on tour of the West Coast and I got to play in front of a lot more people than I normally have and it was a great opportunity but a lot of people came up to me and they were telling me how emotional they felt or how emotional my music and my performance like made them feel like they were like oh my girlfriend and I were like crying <laughs> I'm like wow that's really powerful it's a huge emotion to translate into into music in your performance and I was a little taken back and just like in awe of that, like what I'm doing, being able to affect anyone like that, that powerfully, that, that much it is crazy to me. But at the same time, like I know what I put into it and I know like when I'm playing that I feel a lot of emotions coming out or I feel like it's a very cathartic experience to just like get up there and play my music. Um, so, you know, it's just it feels good to have people understand what I'm doing, too, and feel that way as well. Were you playing? mainly this album live and if you were playing kind of back catalogue as well as the recent album do they feel different from at different points in your life stood on stage playing something from mm -hmm. you know early amulets days yeah. compared to between distant and remote so it's powerful for the audience but you're re-experiencing these things yourself as well yeah absolutely well it's funny because a lot of the older amulet songs because every song is mostly two tape loops in guitar i have a couple songs that have basically decommissioned themselves from my set because they've worn down so much that they don't sound very good anymore and not don't sound good in a in a cool way but like they're not really perf of performance quality anymore and so there's a couple songs that like this one song that the tape loop is broken so much that like i'll have to fix it again and and it's just degraded to a point where like the tape loop has literally decommissioned itself from the set so there's older songs that i just don't play anymore because they're not relevant anymore but like for this set, I only played mostly new songs from the album. And I played one older song from my last album. That last song, it feels a little different from the newer songs. And like playing it was a different experience. I wonder how it would feel to play some of the really older songs uh, in that capacity. Because I think that it would have a much different feel now. It's fascinating that you can't because the medium has degraded itself. <laughs> yeah. And as you said, I mean, not in a cool way. It just don't sound as good. I've like toured a bunch of these, this, this set or these songs and I can hear that. It's just not there anymore. Not like basically there, but it just doesn't sound as good. Well, they're lo-fi to start with. It's not like it was super hi-fi and you're now being picky because it's lost a bit of top exactly. end. They were already lo-fi. And, and they, there's no backups either. So like once a song's kind of done, I think it's done for its lifespan of being performed live. Like it'll always live, you know, on Spotify or whatever. But like as a live song, that's like, ah, we're ret it's retired and it's not coming back. It's almost interesting that it depends on how you measure success and maybe that's the wrong word but the more successful the more project the more gigs that are done the more that you play live the quicker you're going to kind of burn through back catalog mm -hmm. if you just went out and gigged all the time and didn't have time for the new album you could feasibly run up to a point where you've nothing left yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the life there. you've literally worn them out by playing too much luckily there's a, a handful more than a handful there's a lot of songs that don't make it to live set and they, i could always pull out something but it is funny to have like songs be based on such a physical item that like if i lose that or it breaks or it degrades that song no longer exists for me like to be an option is kind of funny i mean i'm sure i could figure out a way to recreate it or hack something together to be like oh i can make that tape loop again but i think it would just be like why why am i doing this <laughs> just move on it must make each moment 
special and especially with something like this you've released an album you're playing it live you potentially want this point in your life not just the music but the whole thing that it embodies to continue to live maybe you do want to play it in several years time if there was and it's, it's hard to put a number on these things but if for example there was 50 plays through of a given cassette yeah. or 100 or 500 sure. the numbers are relevant it must make each one that bit more special yeah I because think so. it, yeah it's like there's some inherent it's gonna go at some point yeah <laughs> you yeah. just don't know you when don't know when and like i think that just with each show it's a little bit different there's no backing tracks there's no like clicks or anything there's everything's like you know the tape loops themselves are gonna i think they're gonna sound a little bit different each time and like the performance itself is it's mostly structured and there's a lot of points of improvisation too so like the the sets are always going to be a little bit different from each other and I kind of experimented with that on tour and playing songs in like different orders and stuff and just trying to figure out live what worked. At one point, like the drummer from the other band got up on stage at the end of my set and was like, can I play drums with you at your last part? And we decided that like drunk at a bar and I was like, yeah, let's do it. And so there's all these like random elements, uh, which kept all the shows very fun, you know, like, oh, like I don't know what's going to happen next necessarily. And I worry about too, like going on tour, you know, with all of these, the four tracks and the tape loops, like, you know, if the tape loop doesn't die, maybe the four track does. And like, you know, you know, it's going to be hard to be on tour and, and get like a Tascam 414, like right away. Can't go to Sears and buy it or something like, so I, I worry about the gear and the way I've structured everything that in a live setting or on tour that something could break and like, oh, I got to figure that out. But it's also like, I, I can't imagine doing it a different way either at this point. I think it's worth the trade-off, yeah. isn't it? That yeah. worry. Yeah, it's it's, and it's, that's, a, it's yeah. a calculated risk, I think. It is. Yeah. It is a calculated risk. I love that these sets, they sort of fade out like distant memories and sort of disappear and and then they go out of commission. It's... I don't know. It's it's got a romance yeah. of the music having life and having breath. Yeah, it, it wasn't intentional. It just kind of happened that way, and it was kind of romantic to be like, "Wow, this these songs they disappear just as they came in." Just well, I think that's a lovely note to end on, guys. Just bringing the show to an end on that uh, beautiful poetic <laughs> thought, Randall. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Yeah, um, you I've so loved much. delving into your mind and <laughs> and your journey yeah. down the the tape route, art route, and life route. Um, it's lovely that you being frank and open with us on yeah, the show. Absolutely, I think you're one that we're going to have to have back on again one of the days. <laughs> so much we could carry on, couldn't we, Ben? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you want me to talk about tapes? I could do that for a while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's certainly a lot to go at. Yeah. And for those that do want more amulets, if you want to know how to amulets, there is a video how to be an amulet with amulet <laughs> we'll link that in our show notes that is public for those that really want some more you can support myself or amulets on patreon both of which we will link in the show notes and there's an interview sat down in a lovely space of tape machines and pedals and lots of yummy gear in randall's room they will link that as well and the final piece of the puzzle which may or may not be out by the time the show is there's also the performance video with amulets at velocity so some shout outs to those seattle connections patchworks tim held podular modcast really enjoyed his chat with abe from ai synthesis i was kind of shouting at my phone trying to join in the conversation with those two weeks <laughs> <recently. laughs> um just before this one there is a new episode from source of uncertainty for all things Bukla from kyle and robert again we'll link all these and ellison wolf has waveform magazine issue three is out very soon which, again, is a nice read. Yeah, and we release our show every month, so remember to subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform. And if you do find yourself over there, you've enjoyed the show, then please give us a thumbs up or have a quick review. That would be fantastic. If you'd like to listen to the podcast with detailed show notes, head over to our website at www.esotericmodulation.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook and keep up with what we're up to there. Instagram's probably my favourite place for browsing. Yeah, right. Ping either of us a question on there. And if there's anything in the show notes that we miss or something you'd like to know more about, just ask us somewhere and we'll be sure to get back to you. And I think that rounds us up. It does. Randall, thank you very much again. Yes, thank you both. This was great. Thank you so much. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Great, thank you. Well, I shall see you all later. All right, bye. See you all. Bye. Bye.